0: Thus the plight of man who rests in himself and thinks that by his wealth, by his wisdom, by his power, he can endure without end. We're going to look at the first two articles of the second section of the Canons of Dort. But before we do that, I'd like to read with you from Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start reading at verse 9 and continue on through verse 23. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now the second head or main point of doctrine from the canons, and you can find this on page um, one sixty-seven. I'm sorry, two sixty-seven in the back of your forms and prayers book. Um. Whereas the first part of the canons focuses on God's unconditional election, Um, the second part really focuses on how that begins to work out, especially how the Lord provides for those whom He has chosen. And so in Article 1, we read that God is not only supremely merciful, but also supremely just. His justice requires us, as he has revealed himself in his word, that the sins we have committed against his infinite majesty be punished with both temporal and eternal punishments of soul as well as body. We cannot escape these punishments unless satisfaction is given to God's justice. Since, however, we ourselves cannot give this satisfaction or deliver ourselves from God's anger, God, in His boundless mercy, has given us as a guarantee His only begotten Son, who was made to be sin and a curse for us in our place on the cross, in order that He might give satisfaction for us. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is costly. We know that on an academic level. We understand, I think, that forgiveness doesn't come with the snap of a finger or the blink of an eye. But do we understand truly what forgiveness costs? Considered through the lens of Scripture, forgiveness involves something more than just saying some words. Forgiveness is the promise that stands behind the words. It is a vow by the one offended, assuring the offender that the sin is paid for and never again will it be demanded. In terms of person-to-person forgiveness, that's a high price that is paid by our hearts. True forgiveness, costly forgiveness means never raising up that offense to make the offender feel bad. It means not telling others of the offense and thereby harming the offender's reputation. True forgiveness forbids us from demanding vengeance for the sin, either from the offender or from God, and perhaps hardest of all, Forgiveness requires us to seek reconciliation with the one who has so offended us. It requires seeking to rebuild the relationship, working to restore trust, speaking with, living with, helping, loving the one who has caused us pain. That's costly. As we seek to forgive others truly... We learn that the emotional, the mental, and the spiritual price of our effort can be exceptionally high. But we can tolerate that cost if we recall how much more it cost God to forgive us. I want to pause there a minute. Because I can't tell you how Many times I have sat down with somebody who is just boiling over with rage, with bitterness, oftentimes at the person or the people who have meant the most to them in their lives. And it's because while they have spoken the words, I forgive, they don't get what I just said. That forgiveness isn't about speaking the words. It's about the promise behind the words. The promise that I will treat you as though you never sinned against me. I will separate your sin and that offense from myself as far as the east is from the west. Not raising it to you or to others or even to my own mind again. They hold on to that offense because releasing that offense is exceptionally costly. And brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that you cannot do it. You cannot truly, biblically forgive the people in your life who have harmed you. Your spouse, your parents, your children, your friend, your neighbor, your co-worker, your cousin, your brother-in-law, your sister-in-law, your whatever. You cannot forgive them in that way. Unless you recognize, unless you truly understand, not only that you are forgiven by God, but what that forgiveness entails. But if you do get that, then you will not be able to rest until you have forgiven them. That's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The Christian must come to true forgiveness with those beside them. Obviously, that's not the only difference between Christians and non-Christians, but it's a very visible one. The Christian can't rest in that tension of not having forgiven his brother or his sister. And the non-Christian, the non-believer, they cannot bring themselves to forgive. And that's what this section of the canons is about. It's about showing us that as hard as forgiveness is for us, as costly as it is for us to forgive the people who have offended us, our act of forgiveness is relatively cheap in comparison with what it cost God to forgive us. Because what it cost Him is more than we can even comprehend. And yet we need to try to comprehend it so that we can understand truly what God has done for us and live in the light of that recognition. And folks, if you start to really wrestle with the reality of what God has done for you, the reality of what he has paid to reconcile you to himself, it will be utterly and absolutely transformative, not just to your way of seeing things, but to the way you interact with those around you, especially those who have offended you. And that's why we consider this evening how God's mercy requires the satisfaction of perfect justice. See, that's what, caught, what it cost Him to forgive us. God's mercy, His forgiveness of us, required the satisfaction of perfect justice. But to understand that, we need to start with the reality and the weightiness of our sin. And so the first point, which is highlighted in Article 1... ...of what we just read... ...is the inescapable punishment of our sins. It's interesting that in the American church today... ...to our shame... ...this is something that is rarely spoken of... ...rarely discussed. You won't find in your local Christian bookstore... ...a bunch of books... ...especially books on the end caps... ...or in the displays... ...about the cost of sin... And of God's wrath. Publishers, book publishers, don't expect those kind of books to move off the shelves. Because people aren't eager to read about how just God is. And how weighty is the cost of our sin. We certainly don't hear it among the television and internet preachers. Not many of them. Many of them. Oh, there's a ton of them that want to talk about what God can do for us that have lots of promises about what we can get for God, that want to discuss the victoriousness of those who live in the Lord, but God's justice, God's wrath against sin, not so much. Instead, we hear so much, we hear endlessly about God's love, and about God being welcoming. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That'll sell books. God accepts you just the way you are, no matter what that way might be. That, that'll get people to tune in. Doesn't matter what you've done, how you live, what you desire. God loves you regardless. That's what itching ears want to hear. But the Bible tells us we can't talk about God's love. That's what Colossians 1 is all about. We can't talk about, we can't truly understand the depth and the breadth and the significance of God's love unless we also talk about God's justice, unless we also talk about God's wrath, unless we also talk about the weighty cost of our sin. Because God is one and God is unchanging. And the God who is just, as we saw this morning, who demands a just consequence for sin is the same God who is loving and merciful and gracious. And that justice and that mercy, it's only in God they can coexist. It's only in Christ that they can coexist. God revealed the requirement of justice from the very start. In Eden, God gave mankind, gave our first parents His commands. These things you must do, these are the commissions that you must fulfill and this is the thing you must not do namely it wasn't just about fruit right don't disobey me don't do what i tell you not to do later god revealed that righteous standard more fully in the law of moses through 10 commandments he fleshed out what it should look like for those who live in a society filled with sin, who find that corruption within themselves to put off sin and to seek after God. Along with that moral law, he gave a bunch of case laws, specific applications of the Ten Commandments, exemplifying how the law is to live in the life of God's people. Repeatedly, God urges His people, "...be holy as I, your God, am holy." God hasn't been shy about showing how man must live. Jesus showed us that it, ultimately it's rather simple and straightforward. You shall love the Lord your God with absolutely everything you are and everything you have and everything you do. And you shall display that by loving your neighbor even the way you love yourself. That is the holy and righteous standard That God has set before all of mankind, absolutely everyone, is commanded to be holy as God is holy, to love the Lord our God without any reserve, and to love man as a demonstration of our love for God. That's what He desires of us. And to our shame and our guilt, we refuse consistently and from the start. From our first moments, Paul reminds us in Colossians 1 verse 21, We were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. From the very first moment, our hearts were corrupt, which inevitably brought forth a life of sin. We sin actively, rejecting God's revelation so that we can justify overlooking what God has commanded, freely choosing to embrace sins that we knew in our hearts and in our minds were wrong, and also passively sinning, refusing to live for God, refusing to do the things that we know He wants us to do. This leaves us guilty in God's just judgment. And because God is just, our guilt demands punishment. God created every one of us. Kids, hear this. God created every one of us, filled us with gifts, surrounded us with opportunities so that we would glorify Him. When we refuse, that demands His justice. And what does that justice look like? It looks like punishment. God said repeatedly in his word that he would not allow those who are unholy into his holy presence. Therefore, he must do what he has sworn to do. He must cast sinners out of his presence, away from his blessing, away from all that is good. God told Adam at the start, in the day you do it, you will die. In the day you sin, you will die. And he did because he was cast out of the presence of God. Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death, which is what Jesus experienced on the cross, isn't it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the essence of death, to be cast away from all the goodness and the great and the glory of God. True justice requires fairness. God cannot send exile and death upon some, but freely pardon others. All sin creates this debt of judgment. It's inescapable. And if we, see the, if we consider that in personal terms, we'll see that that's right. I have six children. If when they were little, I held the boys to a, a very tight standard and, and, and insisted that they follow every letter of my commands, but let the girls do whatever they wanted. There's absolutely no one who wouldn't look at that and say that is unjust, that's not fair. Or if I just picked three at random and said those are the ones I really like, I'm going to let them get away with whatever they want, but the other three I'm going to punish at every, mo- at every opportunity. Everybody would look at that and say that's not okay, right? That's abusive. Justice is only just if all violations of the law receive justice by the same measure. So as parents we strive to be fair in disciplining our children. If one gets spanked for speaking disrespectfully, then we know we can't overlook the next child speaking disrespectfully. If one of our teenagers gets grounded for two weeks for coming in ten minutes after curfew, the next one who comes in after curfew, we know we've got to ground them or we're being unjust, we're being unfair. Well, if that's true for people who are the essence of inconsistency, how much more with our perfectly just God? Because he is just, every sin must receive a just penalty. Because he is just, no sinner can just get a free pass. And were God to do otherwise, then we could not call him just. In fact, our canons remind us God begins meeting out his judgment even now. Article 1 speaks of punishment that is temporal. That is, that's here and now. This is the punishment we receive when our sins come back to bite us. You get caught lying and people stop trusting you. You get caught stealing and you're required to apologize and pay. You get into gambling, which is coveting that which you've not earned. And pretty soon you end up poor. Those are temporal responses, temporal costs of our sin. In this life, our sin, young people hear this, in this life, your sin costs, or causes untold misery. And that's a blessing. It is a blessing when you get caught in your sin and it brings a consequence. Because that consequence is as nothing in comparison with the fullness of what all your sins deserve. It's a hint. It's a foretaste. Imagine, imagine going to a restaurant and they set the appetizer before you, right? And the appetizer is absolutely horrible. It's, it smells rotten. It tastes disgusting. You, you can't even put the second bite in your mouth. It's so bad. Wouldn't you get up and leave before the main course comes? Because if the appetizer is that bad, surely the main course isn't going to be better. Well, that's why God lovingly allows us to suffer those here and now costs of our sin. It's so that we can see that what's coming is not going to be better if we don't change course, if we continue in the way of the wicked. Hebrews 9, verse 27, tells us it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And we just sang a little bit ago in Psalm 49. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for shale or the grave. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in shale with no place to dwell. All who trust in themselves. All who think I can handle it. That's their end. They go to the grave where they suffer endlessly for their sin. And it won't just be a matter of loneliness. It won't just be a matter of, you know, not being in the glory of heaven. You sometimes hear people mockingly say, well, you know, you can go to heaven for the climate or hell for the company. No, no, no. There won't be any good company in hell. There will be only torment. Jesus says... In Matthew 25, that on the day of judgment, this is verse 41, He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then He says, These will go away into eternal punishment punishment for our sins is inescapable and absolutely intolerable, but it is necessary because God is just. Now folks might not like hearing that, but it is the reality that God has revealed in his word and he revealed it so that we wouldn't be surprised, so that we couldn't say, I did not know. He even allows us to get a taste of it here so that we'll know this is absolutely horrible. I must escape it. So what do we do about that? We'll talk in a minute about what God did about that. But what we need to do about that, first of all, is rejoice that God revealed it to us. Countless are the multitudes who follow these false gods that are, because they're made after the image of man, they're fickle. They never quite know whether they've given enough, whether they've done enough. Think about the Muslim. How absolutely foolish a religion. You never know if you've done enough. You never know if you have satisfied the wrath of Allah. And so when you go, that's why, there's, that's why there's a demand for suicide bombers and jihadi warriors. Because that's the only way, if you die pursuing jihad, that's the only way you know you're going to get into heaven after death. But if you die a natural death, if you die because of illness or because of a car accident, you don't know if you've done enough, if you've satisfied enough, because it depends on you. But our God has already told us, this is the cost of your sin. It is guaranteed. You can be sure of it. Now, it's not good news, because we're sinners. It's not good news that Sin costs God's full justice, but at least we know God does not change. This is what the sentence will be. And so clearly we need to escape the consequence of that sin. How are we to do that? Well, when we ask that question of Scripture, God's Word answers, In you there is no escape. Again, from Psalm 49. Truly no man can ransom another. Or give to God the price of His life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. The cost of God's, God's justice is unthinkable. Because God is infinite. And He created us to honor Him, to glorify Him eternally. And our sin ruined us for that. Which means that we have offended His infinite majesty. We deserve His infinite justice. Our minds can't even wrap around that. Psalm 49 calls us to confess... That in us there is no escape. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. But on the other hand, verse 15, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. For he will receive me. You see, that's the only escape. We can't do it. We can't accomplish it. We could never begin to pay the price. But he can. Only God can do that which we cannot. We heard it in Colossians 1, verse 12. That it is the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. The only hope we have of satisfying God's justice is if He satisfies it for us. And so that's the other thing that we see here. Not only the inescapable punishment of our sins, but the infinite grace of our substitute. Because you see, a substitute is The thing that we need. Consider a father who loves his son, but watches with grief as his son goes absolutely wild. He starts spending time in his teenage years with bad influences, making terrible choices, refusing to listen to his parents, refusing to heed their counsel. Mom and dad give him increasing consequences for his sin, but he refuses to see that this is what he deserves and that, That he needs to turn back from it until finally, finally, he sinks down to this low spot. He gets caught breaking the law in multiple ways. He ends up in a jail cell, stripped of his everything his friends, his fun, his money, his all, all alone. And after a few days languishing there, grieving, he calls his father in tears. You were right. I see it. I've ruined my life. I need your help. I want to turn a new, to a new direction. I want to get rid of these friends. I want to get rid of these sins. I want I to want change. That's what the father's been praying for. That's what the father's been longing for. He's eager to embrace his son and say, Praise the Lord, I'll walk alongside you that path of of repentance. But now there's a problem, isn't there? He broke the law. There's going to be a court date. And at that court date, there are going to be consequences for the, the sins that he has racked up. The judge is going to say, You need to pay these thousands of dollars in fines, or you need to spend these weeks, these months in jail. The father knows if he goes to jail and he loses hope, he's going to be surrounded by all of these influences that are going to want to drag him right back to where those terrible friends did before. He wants to escape, or to, to allow the son to escape that, but how can he do that? The son is penniless. He spent all his money on foolish things, on wicked things. The only way he can avoid seeing his son go to that place where he's surrounded by those ungodly and wicked influences is if he pays the price of justice himself. Now we can debate in the individual instance whether that would be wise or not. But understand that's a picture of what God did for us. We deserved eternal incarceration in hell. Separation from all the good, all the blessings of God. And yet God said, I will pay the price myself. And that's why he sent Jesus. We heard it in Colossians 1. The Father delivered us from the darkness in which we live by sending His Son as the Redeemer. In Him, in Jesus, verse 14, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When God sent His Son, Jesus, it was God Himself who came to save us. He who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He who rules the kings and the nations of the earth. God Himself came, verse 20... To reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And He accomplished this all, verse 22, by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. He willingly received all that we deserved. The suffering, the death, the alienation from God that we deserved. He even endured the unthinkable, God being cut off from God. The Father rejecting His Son. As the angels and the saints in heaven sing, according to Revelation 5 verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. That's what He did for us. He ransomed us. By the blood of the cross. And because of what Jesus did for us, we are able to be forgiven and reconciled to God. Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 22, He has reconciled in His body of the flesh by His death, you. The price of justice has been paid in full. It's not a cooperative effort. It's not as though Jesus paid part of it. Now you've got to work off the rest. That's Catholicism. That's a lie. It's not as though Jesus paid the price, but now it's on you to decide whether... No, no, no. You'd never decide that. Your pride is too great, even in the midst of destruction. He did. He paid. He accomplished everything. What's more? Revelation 5, verse, verse 10. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Though we deserve God's wrath, we've gained the privilege of serving Him as priests of entering into his presence to give him glory. Though we deserve to be cast off and scorned, God has made us to be a kingdom through Christ that we might rule on the earth at his side. But only, but only, Colossians 1 verse 23, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Only if we trust Jesus continually. For our forgiveness, for our righteousness, for our life. Only if we refuse to trust in us, we refuse to take glory for ourselves, we refuse to think that we've got to do part of it. Only if we give him all the glory, all the confidence, only then will all that he has done be imputed to us. And to ensure, this is the amazing thing to me, to ensure that we do trust him totally because he knows our weakness, because he knows the futility of our hearts. He sent his spirit to give us the faith we needed. He surrounded us with saints who would encourage us in the faith that we must live in. And he gave us the promise that by his spirit, by his word, by his discipleship, he will never, ever let us go. He does it all. He even holds us firm in the faith by which we're saved. Are you not astounded by that grace? You should be. And if you're not, then you need to sit down and you need to evaluate your life, all of your life, in the light of God's word, in the light of God's law, and recognize how much you deserve His wrath. You need to read Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3. You need to read the Psalms. You need to recognize how many times, how frequently, how persistently you turned aside from Him. And then you need to look at Colossians 1 again. You need to look at Revelation 5. You need to look at Psalm 49. You need to recognize He did absolutely everything that you could not and would not do. He did more... He did more for you than you could survive. It would utterly annihilate you. That's why we would have to suffer eternally in hell. Because if we tried to suffer it all in one blow like Jesus did, it would destroy us. And he did it so that we who deserved nothing but wrath could be adopted as sons and daughters. That's amazing. In the light of that astounding gift, how can we not live for him? I mean, if you were that son who lived such a wicked life and ended up in jail and finally came to his senses and told his father he wanted a new life, he wanted to turn a new leaf, and dad, despite all that you hurt him, despite all the times that you cursed him, despite the the, the embarrassment that you heaped upon him time after time after time, he came down and not just bailed you out, but paid your fine, satisfied justice on your behalf, welcomed you back into his home wouldn't you out of gratitude tell others what an amazing father you had? Wouldn't you out of thankfulness refuse to hang out with those friends who led you down that wicked path? Wouldn't you, out of profound and overwhelming thankfulness, seek to live in a way that would show him how grateful you were? Now, if you would do that with an earthly father, how much more God who did so much more Who paid so much greater a price. That's why Colossians 1 calls us to to live a life of gratitude. to, To live a brand new life. Filled with rejoicing. Filled with obedience. Filled with honoring and glorifying God. Because that's what we were made to do. And that's what we cannot not do. As those who have been delivered from such a debt. Congregation of our Lord. There is nothing inexpensive about forgiveness. That's true when we're forgiving one another. When we have to acknowledge that the only way we can be reconciled is if we bear the price of saying, I will never raise that with you again. I will bear the shame. I will bear the hurt. And I will give you my love. That's hard. But infinitely harder for the God who is the personification and the fullness of justice who took the cost of that justice on himself in Christ so that we could know the fullness of his love. Let us trust in him and him alone for that. And having trusted in him, let us live a life that is absolutely filled with thankfulness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it humbles us to the dust to know how much you loved us when we hated you, when we scorned you, when we mocked you. You are merciful beyond compare. Lord, we pray that you would help us, enable us, empower us to respond aright, trusting in Christ for all that we need, And living a life of gratitude in word and in deed, flowing from our very hearts before you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.